This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Ben Merriman, who is the author of Conservative Innovators, How States Are Challenging Federal Power. The book was published by the University of Chicago Press this year in 2019, and I have the pleasure to have Ben on the phone here today. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have read the book. As I briefly mentioned to you, this is an area that I have a interest in. And so I learned a lot and have been looking forward to talking to you about it. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are now, maybe where you've been in the past, just so that we can get a sense of who you are. Sure. Um, Well, so I'm currently an assistant professor at the School of Public Affairs and Administration at the University of Kansas. I got my PhD in sociology at the University of Chicago. And in many ways, it's, it's conducting the project that turned into this book, that took me away from sociology and into the world of public administration. Yeah, uh, it's 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 so interesting just to hear your what that your background is and says so much about you know the the broad coverage of the book. Um, there are tons of amazing things going on here, um, and and so so you know congratulations on the release of the book. Yeah, the um, at the beginning of the book you provide what I thought was a really helpful anchor um, because, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of stuff going in the book. Um, the anchor that you provide is this really useful list of the goals of the conservative movement, or at least of conservatives. You do that in chapter one. And I wonder if you might sort of briefly summarize the most important from that list, uh, because I think it would give us a good sense of uh, where you are, are at the starting point and how you're thinking of the the ideas uh, of the of, of these people that you study in the book. Sure. Um, well, so in many ways, the the conservatives I study, you know, they're state level executive office holders by and large, and you know their their goals are pretty familiar goals of conservative Republicans. You know, they favor low taxation, low government expenditure, um, the use of private activity or markets um, whenever possible, um, limited regulation of labor markets in the economy. Um, and of course, as state officials, they favor generally a broadened scope for state power and circumscription of federal power. Um, and, you know, some of them also favor sort of really kind of stringent state level enforcement of federal immigration law, um, though in many ways, this is an issue that has really divided state-level conservatives in the past decade or so. Um, so the the thing that makes these conservatives innovative, as I term them, it's it's really not their goals, because of course this is a pretty familiar set of conservative goals. Um, 
what's what's innovative is their approach to means or strategies to achieve those goals. Yeah, um, and that's really the the focus of of the big part of the the most of the analysis of the book. And maybe even before we get to that, I wonder if you could place this sort of historically. Um, why now? Uh, why did these set of demands arise at, at this point in, in U.S. history? I wonder if you could sort of place sort of your take on the subject matter and, and the book itself in a historical uh, context. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, of course, a lot of the events of the book um, focus on conservative state resistance to the Obama administration's domestic policies in areas like healthcare, environmental protection, immigration, and voting rights. Um, but there's a, a deeper history behind um, the possibility of successful use of administrative behavior and administrative law to sort of really derail Obama's policies in this area. Um, and, you know, I sort of see three deep historical factors at play there. Um, the first is the, the long-term growth of executive power at all levels of government. So, of course, at the federal level, we're very familiar with what sort of expansion and executive power looks like. You know, we have a president who um, is kind of the symbolic center of American political life. Anything a president does is automatically newsworthy. Um, and then the president, totally aside from that symbolic role, also sits at the head of a bureaucracy of millions. Um, what's more easily overlooked is that the, the, the relative growth and the influence of the executive branch has actually been more pronounced at the state level. Um, and that's because a lot of what we think of as kind of federal policies, um, so welfare programs like Medicaid, SNAP, and so on, um, are really actually administered at the state level um, according to sort of state-defined rules. Um, and so there's been big growth in the scope of the state executive to implement federal policy. Um, and unlike Congress, um, state legislatures are not a particularly meaningful check on the activity of executive officers, um, simply because state legislatures are not around a lot of the time. Um, you know, there in many states, there's still kind of an ideal of the citizen legislator. Um, legislatures are kind of in the capital maybe two, three months a year. Um, and the rest of the time, it's really the governor running the show. Um, and so state executive officers like governors and attorneys general, they have a, a lot of resources, a lot of kind of formal power constitutionally, um, and a, a lot of scope to kind of wield that power to achieve political goals. Um, so that's the first factor. You know, a second is, of course, party polarization. Um, since, you know, really the start of the Reagan administration, at the, the national level, um, the two major parties have been of roughly equal strength. And the norm nationally has been divided government for the last 30 or 40 years. Um, but at the state level, um, most states are now pretty firmly under the control of a single party. Um, so there's close to 40 states in the U.S. where there's one party that controls both the governorship and both legislative chambers. Um, and so this means that, that state governments are very partisan, and that means that some subset of them are, are sort of always going to be firmly in control of people who really oppose whoever happens to be president, whatever that president happens to be trying to do. Um, and sort of the, the sort of the concentration of power in the executive, polarization as well, um, makes it sort of easier for 
state-level actors to cooperate with their counterparts in other states um, and provides them perhaps more political incentive to do so. And you know that really matters in view of a kind of a third long-term trend, um, which is sort of the judiciary's growing scrutiny of the behavior of the federal executive. Um, so there sort of have long been kind of court doctrines that uh, sort of favor a highly deferential view of the activity of the federal executive. Um, but in the last 10 or 15 years, um, the, the courts have really, you know, been more skeptical about unilateral exercises of federal power. Um, and in particular, in 2007, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling that had the effect of making it a lot easier for states in particular to sue the federal executive. Um, and, you know, that ruling, it was uh, a ruling against the Bush administration's EPA and was understood at the moment as a kind of a liberal ruling. Um, but the precedent set there really was a key to enabling um, sort of multi-state conservative litigation against the Obama administration, which was remarkably successful. Um, so, so this is, sorry, um, this is sort of like a 30 to 60 year set of trends that kind of creates um, sort of a structure of opportunity for state level office holders to really sort of step up to Obama in 2010. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, now much of the book is about a specific set of tactics used to advance these, these conservative goals over this, this time period. But they're not the tactics we often hear about. So, so for example, you suggest, you argue in the book that state legislatures do not feature prominently, despite what we hear about the influence of a group like ALEC. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about why you downplay this, the, the, the so-called model bill strategy, and what you do argue is the central strategy, strategy during this time period that, that you study. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the key strategies that I look at are sort of the use of um, state-initiated lawsuits in the federal courts, um, relying very heavily on kind of administrative procedure and administrative law arguments, um, coupled with new kinds of administrative behaviors at the state level. And those range from very simple strategies like simply refusing federal funds or refusing to implement federal policies or cooperate with federal policy implementation through to sort of more sophisticated kinds of behaviors like, uh, you know, creating new sorts of um, state level immigration enforcement and relying upon um, readings of federal law and federal court cases um, as sort of authorization for that. Um, or in the, the domain of elections, the sort of the use of new sorts of administrative practices of voter roll maintenance um, to the effect of make it more difficult for many people to register to vote or stay on the rolls. Um, so I, I downplay the role of state legislatures um, in part because I'm sort of really interested in the, the interplay between federal and state power. 
Um, and in many ways, um, you see legislatures um, taking action in areas that are kind of already more firmly within the, the ambit of state power. Um, but I also think that in many ways, there can be a kind of a, a sort of spurious correlation between the states that are sort of most actively involved in resistance to federal power and states that pass a lot of conservative model bills. Um, and that's because of this point I made earlier about growth in state executive power. Um, so if you look at the states that are most likely to pass ALEC model bills, for example, um, of course, these are on average more conservative state legislatures. Um, but it's notable additionally that these are typically um, weakly professionalized or amateur legislatures with sort of very limited policy resources. Um, and, you know, the virtue of, you know, an ALEC model bill from the point of view of such a legislator is that the, the bill language is there already, the talking points are there already. Um, but in many cases, the, the states that are adopting these bills are also ones with notably powerful governors and notably weak legislatures. Um, and so ALEC is maybe, you know, an indication of the, the sort of the ideological temperature of the state, um, but not necessarily where the key action is. Now, one of the most interesting parts of the books to me is, is this discussion of the move from states' rights to state-guaranteed rights. Uh, what is the difference between these two, and, and how do the state-guaranteed rights feature in this conservative strategy? Yeah, so I mean, you know, part of the, the success of states and the courts, I argue, um, has involved setting aside a kind of an older vocabulary of federalism. So you don't see a lot of cases where there's very high reliance on the language of states' rights or the, the provisions of the Tenth Amendment and so on. Um, and you do see many conservative states adopting policies um, or constitutional amendments um, that provide new guarantees of rights to their citizens. Um, so for example, uh, right to try laws, which guarantee um, terminally ill patients a right to try any experimental treatment prescribed by a physician, whether that's been federally approved or not. Um, or uh, sort of secret ballot laws, which guarantee access to a secret ballot in labor union elections, um, which is in some ways uh, in tension with federal labor law and collective bargaining law. Um, so this is a strategy that is more or less consciously an adaptation of a liberal strategy that was used to great success in the latter part of the 20th century, um, most notably in the case of school funding. Um, so the, the federal court system has never really recognized a strong right to a well-funded public education at the K-12 level. Um, but many states have constitutional language guaranteeing fair or adequate funding for public schools. Um, and so a great deal of you know, efforts to increase school funding and promote equity in schools has really involved um, this kind of state constitutional language. Um, and you see many sort of very clever conservative legal thinkers noting that this strategy has worked well and saying, you know, look, we can adopt similar kinds of positive rights guarantees for our citizens as a kind of protection of individual liberty or to kind of, you know, test the boundaries of the allocation of power between states and the federal government. Now, another uh, important part uh, of the book is, is this issue of uh, fiscal issues, which you just allude to. 
Um, typically, the federal government um, uses these uh, financial strings to get get uh, what it wants. Um, not so today, uh, at least based on the evidence that, that you describe. What has happened in this move to to what you describe as uncooperative federalism? Um, and and maybe you know the the case of Kansas, which you use uh, throughout the second half of the book. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how this has played out in in the specific state of Kansas. Sure. I mean, Kansas is a, a great example of this. Um, so Governor Sam Brownback, who was elected in 2010, um, refused um, some federal grant money related to sort of healthcare innovations. Um, Kansas refused Medicaid expansion and has persisted in refusing Medicaid expansion um, up to the present day. Um, and declined to create a, a health insurance exchange, which was part of the Affordable Care Act as well. Um, so, you know, in Kansas, there are sort of two facets to the story. Um, you know, the first is this kind of position of um, intransigence or uncooperation with the Obama administration, of simply sort of refusing or declining to carry out federal mandates and being prepared to forego the money as well. Um, which is firmly within the legal right of states to do, um, but relatively unusual in the sense that, um, you know, since the New Deal, states have usually been prepared to to go along with policies they might find ideologically disagreeable if there was money as a sweetener or inducement to implementation. Um, but also within Kansas, um, Governor Brownback undertook a very sort of bold experiment, as he termed it, in small government. Um, so he secured the passage of a, a tax bill um, that sort of began a phased abolition of the income tax in the state, and that exempted um, personal income from business sources from the state income tax, sort of on the theory that this... Um, you know, this policy would stimulate businesses to move into the state, that it would spur economic growth, um, and that, uh, in a sense, this tax cut would, to a degree, pay for itself. Um, and I should mention, you know, this this tax bill in Kansas served in many ways as the, the model for the federal tax code reforms enacted in 2017. Um, yeah, please, go ahead. And, you know, it's worth noting that the the experiment was not judged to be a successful one. Um, so a, a legislature controlled by a supermajority of Republicans um, voted after five years to rescind this tax policy um, over the, the veto of Governor Brownback. And I wonder, you know, maybe we can just sort of start to, to wind up our conversation by, by talking about that. And sort of we begin our, began our conversation talking about these big goals, big uh, conservative goals, and it's a list of six or seven big things. And this strategy, which is relatively novel, uh, how do we judge it? Uh, do, we, do we judge it in the way that you just described, which is uh, the rescinding of a prominent facet of the strategy? Or are there other ways that you think about trying to make sense of whether um, uh, this approach uh, is working, uh, has worked, and, and what it will mean for the future in places like Kansas and, and other states where this is such a big part of the, the discussion of what government does. Yeah, well, I think in many ways, um, you know, one, one thing that I think is very interesting is the, the readiness of the conservatives I studied to learn from the successes of liberals and progressives. Um, so there's a, a very conscious effort to understand, well, 
sort of why did these movements succeed? What strategies can we learn from and emulate? Um, and uh, you know, I think if you look at American history, there's often a kind of a, a pendulum movement of strategies between the left and the right. Um, and uh, you know, I certainly think that where the sort of the future of policy in the United States is concerned, um, you know, what things will look like 10 or 20 years from now um, will depend a lot on how readily liberals and progressives and social scientists um, are able to sort of take conservative success seriously and understand why it's worked. Um, I also think that that there's a significance to this activity that goes beyond, um, you know, the mere fights about particular policies. Um, I think that in many ways, um, this approach of kind of administrative non-cooperation, of lawsuits against the federal executive, um, it it sort of is a hint or a suggestion of a change in the basic structure of American government, um, one that may leave state governments far more powerful than they've been since before the New Deal. Um, and, you know, I have a hard time guessing what what sort of the future might hold in a U.S. where a lot more power rests with the states. Um, because I think there are, at present, a lot of legal open questions about how far this sort of trend of policy divergence at the state level can continue. And then open practical questions about how far states will be interested to pursue really bold new policy experiments left or right um, as their sort of formal powers and sort of scope for initiative broaden. Yeah, the, the very, very interesting book uh, that you've been hearing about is titled Conservative Innovators, How States Are Challenging Federal Power. Uh, the book is published by the University of Chicago Press, and the author who you've been hearing from is Ben Merriman. Merriman. Ben, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me.